Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, Roman and K9 as we discuss the landmark 100th Doctor Who story. The Doctor, Roman and K9 are continuing their search for the parts of the key to time. And this week they come to face to face, well, face to stone? With the stones of blood. As usual, we will be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P. Or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. We're one-third of the way there. Because, <laughs> <Yeah. yay. laughs> Also, to those of you who waited two weeks for the Pirate Planet, I'm sorry. I completely... So, we skipped a recording week because I had a a family thing and it was only like last Sunday Paddy was like are you planning on putting up the pirate planet and I was like huh <laughs> surely I put it no no I didn't no okay no. sorry <laughs> you didn't and stop calling me Shirley <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but it's up now which is important so after we've aired and yard and avasted <laughs> my way through the pirate planet now it's time to go on to the stones of blood so I shall start the story summary. Part 1. In the TARDIS, the Doctor and Romana connect the two collected segments to the key to time together. Romana hands the Doctor the locator and suggests he start looking for the next segment. He heads back to the console room, but not before making it seem like it was his idea in the first place. The Doctor finds the next set of coordinates and gleefully tells Romana that she is going to enjoy the new location. Meanwhile, on Earth, a group of rogue figures assemble at a stone circle and carry out a druidic ceremony. Several of the figures pour cups of blood into each of the stones, which then begin to glow and emit a strange, faint heartbeat. Back on the TARDIS, Romana emerges from the wardrobe, wearing a very fashionable variation of a countryside outfit, but the Doctor suggests changing her footwear. Suddenly a message fills the air, telling them to beware the Black Guardian. Romana asks what's going on, and the Doctor begins to wonder why the White Guardian never told Romana of his dark counterpart. Romana presses the Doctor for information, saying that she needs to know everything in case something happens to him. The Doctor tells her that the White Guardian took the form of the Time Lord President and sent her to assist the Doctor. The two then discuss the nature of the key to time and its purpose for maintaining the balance of time and preventing the universe from plunging into eternal chaos. Suddenly, an alarm comes from the console and they go to investigate it, accompanied by the recently arrived K-9. Romana seems less than thrilled when the Doctor says that they are going to Earth, but he assures her that she'll like it. They make their way through the countryside and come across a group of indentations of the ground caused by something extremely heavy. Before they are distracted, Romana uses the locator and the signal seems to come from the nearby stone circle, so they make their way towards it. Once there, the Doctor explains the purpose of a stone circle, but again Romana seems less than impressed in the perceived primitive nature of the science behind it. She then suggests that one of the stones could be the next segment, and the Doctor tells her to use the locator. Romana says that there is no signal, but is then shocked by the sudden appearance of an elderly woman. The woman introduces herself as Professor Amelia Rumford, a leading academic in Bronze Age funeral rites. She mistakes the doctor for a fellow historian and begins to waffle on about her interest in the site, whilst the two Time Lords exchange tired glances. However, she piques their interest when she mentions the peculiar fact that there are more stones present than there were recorded when the site was first discovered. The doctor then brings their attention to a patch of dried blood nearby. Suddenly another woman appears and Rumford introduces her as her associate, Vivian Fay. 
She begins to set up survey equipment and says that the blood is most likely from a sacrificial ceremony carried out by the members of the BIDS, the British Institute of Druidic Studies. Both Chi and Rumford express their distaste with the ill-informed practices. The doctor asks where he can find them and they say that the leader of the group, Mr. DeVries, lives a few miles away. Roman expresses dismay at the journey as she did not have a chance to actually change her shoes before they left the TARDIS. However, the doctor tells her to stay behind and he would bring her some proper boots when he returns. He then quietly tells Roman to keep an eye on the two ladies as he says that there's something odd about them. Before he goes, he mentions about the indentations nearby, but Vivian says that they were most likely caused by local farmers moving machinery. Meanwhile, in a secret temple under the watchful eye of a raven, De Vries and one of his fellow druids perform a ceremony wishing death upon the enemies of their god, the Kaliak. However, they are forced to stop when they hear the doorbell to the house above. They hear that the doctor has let himself into the house, and De Vries goes up to meet him. He finds him examining a portion of the historian who initially discovered and surveyed the stone circle, and he tells him of his gruesome demise when one of the stones fell on him. The doctor notices a series of paintings missing from the wall, and De Vries says that they are away for cleaning. He says that they were the portraits of former ladies of the house and goes through each of their extraordinary backstories, all of which seem to include ill fates for their husbands. The reason leads him through to the rest of the house. After a tour of the house, they sit down to have a drink. The doctor confronts the reason about the modern practice of Druidism, which he says is largely based on assumptions from the 17th century, as there is very little actual recorded history of the practice. He asked De Vries why he is so interested in the stones. De Vries said it is because of his devotion to the Kaliak. Suddenly a figure in a bird-like mask and feathered robe appears in front of the doctor and De Vries uses the distraction to knock him out. Back at the stone circle, Rumford and Vivian pack up and invite Romana to their cottage for refreshments, but she says that she will wait for the doctor. After they leave, she notices a group of crows circling menacingly as she uses the locator to get her reading. She suddenly hears the doctor call out for her, and she follows his voice to a nearby cliff edge. She hears him call again, and she turns around to face him, but then backs away in terror and falls over the edge of the cliff. Part 2 Romana manages to grab onto a rocky outcrop and stops her fall into the water below, calling for help as she struggles to hold on. Meanwhile, the unconscious doctor has been taken to the stone circle by DeVries and his followers. DeVries orders that he be bound to a stone so that they can sacrifice him to the Kaliak, but one of his followers, Martha, begs him to stop. She tells him that his death could bring undue attention to them, but DeVries says that the Kaliak has foreseen their safety. Suddenly the doctor wakes up and asks if the sacrificial blade is clean as he doesn't want to get tetanus from it. DeVries calls him a blasphemer and prepares to kill him, but the doctor says that he can see a bicycle headlight approaching them. He calls out for help and is answered by Rumford. DeVries and the others flee to their cars as she arrives and she releases the doctor from his bonds. The doctor then asks why she is there and she says that she came back with a flask of tea for Romana and they both realise that she is missing. The doctor calls out for her and spots her discarded shoes nearby. Rumford says that she would have to organise a search party in the morning due to the darkness and laments that they don't have a dog to help track Romana. The doctor then calls for a genius and then summons K-9 from the TARDIS. He tells Rumford to stay put in case Romana comes back and he goes to meet K-9. He finds him coming from the TARDIS and asks him if he can track Romana. K-9 says that he still has all her biological data on file and proceeds to lead the doctor to the cliff edge. They find Romana, who is initially grateful to see K-9, but when she sees the doctor, she tells the robot dog to be careful of him. The doctor tells her to stop acting foolish and lowers his scarf to help her up. She reluctantly takes the scarf, but once she reaches the top, she accuses him of having pushed her over the edge. 
Doctor gets K9 to confirm that he is the real Doctor, and Romander wonders what took his form and why he tried to kill her. They suddenly realise that someone has found the segment of the key to time and is using it to manipulate events. The doctor says they need to go back to the TARDIS and get her a proper set of footwear. Back in the TARDIS, Romana finishes changing into something more appropriate, and the doctor says that he wants to take another reading of the stone circle. Romana says that she doesn't see the point, but the doctor leaves, saying that it has something to do with interspatial geometry. Romana asks K9 if he knows what the doctor is talking about, but the robot dog fails to come up with a response, and so they follow after him. En route, they take another reading, and it indicates a strong signal at the stone circle. They arrive to find Vivian comforting a worried Rumford, who enthusiastically greets them as their safe return. Romana says that the signal is staying, that it is right there, and the doctor asks Rumford to take Romana back to her cottage so that she can show her all of her research on the site. He then says that he is going back to speak to De Vries as he feels that he is worried about something and might reveal what it is. At De Vries's house, De Vries expresses panic to Marta that the raven has disappeared, and he begs the Caliac to have mercy on them. They suddenly hear the strange heartbeats down from the stones and watch as a glow approaches the house. De Vries tells Marta to leave, but she refuses to go without him. Their screams are heard by the Doctor and K-9 as they approach the house, and K-9 warns the Doctor of an alien presence. They rush to the house to find the front of it smashed in, and the bodies of De Vries and Marta crush the pulp. K-9 notices a trail of silicate residue near the bodies, and they carefully follow it to the rear study. The trail stops at the rear door, and the Doctor closes it, saying that the coast seems clear. Suddenly, one of the standing stones crashes through the door and knocks the doctor to the ground. K9 fires at it and it emits an unearthly howl before retreating back into the woods. K9 follows after it and the doctor comes to and goes after him. At Rumford's house, Romana goes through the notes which reveal that the stone circle is part of a trinity of stone circles, including Stonehenge and Bryn Gwyddon, that are linked to an ancient prophecy. She also pointed out that the land that the circle is on has been owned consistently by women for the last 700 years. Vivian scoffingly asks if she thinks that some clandestine sisterhood has been worshipping the stones all this time and then points out that De Vries is the only one that they know of that has anything to do with that sort of thing. Romana asks if the convent records still exist and Rumford says that they may be at De Vries's house as it was built upon the site of the old convent after it was torn down. Romana says that she will go and take a look, and Rumford says that she will go with her, whilst Vivian opts to stay behind. They arrive to find the destruction wreaked by the stone, and go in in search of the Doctor and K-9. They find him in the study, where the Doctor is tending to the badly damaged K-9, who apologises for not being strong enough to stop the stone. Romana asks if he can be fixed, and K-9 suggests that they salvage what parts that they can from him, but the Doctor says that he will be alright. However, he takes Romana aside and says that it might be kinder to remove his cerebral core. Romana says that that would kill him, and instead asks if the TARDIS has a molecular stabiliser. When the Doctor says that it does, she suggests using it to maintain his circuits long enough for them to regenerate themselves. The Doctor exclaims the idea as being brilliant before saying in a more restrained manner that it could work. He tells her to take K9 back to the TARDIS whilst he and Rumford go to look for the bodies of DeVries and Marta, which have gone missing. He tells Rumford that whatever killed them feasts on blood to survive. Elsewhere, the masked and feathered robe figure from earlier pours a cup of blood into one of the stones at the circle and orders it to obey them. Back at the house, the doctor looks around for a secret tunnel or room whilst talking to Rumford about the caveat and wonders why there are no images of it in the house. He then remembers the missing paintings and says that they must have been hidden for a reason. He recalls something DeVries said earlier about the ravens and spots a carving of one on a nearby fireplace. He touches it and a secret door opens near it 
which he and Rumford go inside to investigate. Inside, they find a secret cellar and the missing paintings, all of which show Vivian in them. Back in the TARDIS, Romana finishes connecting K9 to the molecular stabilizer. She then goes outside and sees a large flock of crows both on the TARDIS and making their way towards the stone circle. She goes to take a look and sees a strange red glow coming from it. Suddenly Vivian appears, wearing the feathered robe, and forces Romana into the circle. She then aims an electronic staff at her, which causes Romana to vanish. Part 3 In the cellar, the Doctor explains to a shocked Rumford that Vivian is the Kaliak and is pretending to be the various female landowners. Suddenly, one of the stones appears from a tunnel and tries to crush them, but they manage to escape. They race outside but see another one of the stones making its way towards them. An excited Rumford suggests capturing the stone in the name of science and takes out a billy club to wield against it, but an incredulous doctor drags her away. They make their way towards the cliff edge pursued by the stone and the doctor manages to lure it over the edge, acting as a matted over his coat. He then says that they need to find Vivian. They find her at the stone circle, wearing her full apparel and drawing a circle in the ground with the electronic staff. Vivian says that she has Romana and promises to keep her safe as long as the Doctor leaves her alone. The Doctor moves forward but is repelled by a force field and Vivian laughs as she vanishes from sight, telling them to beware the Ogre. Rumford asks what she meant and the Doctor explains that the Ogre is the native name for the stones, derived from their home planet of Ogres. He says that the planet is sparsely populated and so a planet like Earth is a perfect feeding ground for them. A worried Rumford asks him how they will find Romana and he sends her back to the cottage to look for any crystals so he can see if they contain tritium. He then makes his way to the TARDIS to gather some equipment. A short while later, he arrives at the cottage along with the mostly healed canine and sets up a strange ray-like device. Rumford shows him a container she found filled with crystals, and he says that they contain tritium, as they were what Vivian was using to power her staff. Rumford again asks where Romana and Vivian are, and the doctor tells her that they are in hyperspace, leading K9 to attempt to explain the concept to the bewildered professor. The doctor tries a simpler approach, using the theory of relativity, which Rumford is able to understand better. The doctor explains that both Romana and Vivian are still within the stone circle, but currently in the hyperspace dimension. Rumford asks if he is from outer space, and he casually remarks that he is more from inner time before presenting his ray device to K9 for appraisal. K9 says that the ray will be able to open a bridge to hyperspace, but for only a window of less than 32 seconds before burning out. The doctor says they will have to do, and K9 reminds him to mark the entry point from within the hyperspace so that he can get out again. The doctor then leads him to the stone circle. At the circle, the doctor instructs Rumford on how to use the ray and tells her to operate it for less than 30 seconds every half hour in order to prevent it from burning out. She asks what would happen if the Ogre come, and the doctor says that K9 would be able to keep her in a protective force field for a limited amount of time. They then prepare to use the ray, but it sparks after it activates, and K9 reveals that there is a fault in the circuitry. The doctor goes to fix it, but suddenly K9 says that two Ogre are approaching them. The doctor fixes the fault and gets Rumford to activate it. The beam hits the Doctor and he vanishes into hyperspace, whilst K9 holds the Ogre at bay. The Doctor reappears in the pristine white hallway of a ship of some kind. He looks out a nearby viewport and sees the void of hyperspace outside. He then begins searching the various rooms for Romana, encountering several skeletal remains of people in spacesuits. He eventually finds her and she recounts what happened with Vivian. They then make their way back to the ship, discussing the supposed impossibility of the existence of hyperspace. 
They find the bridge of the ship, and the Doctor pulls up a view screen that shows that the ship encompasses the entire stone circle, but remains hidden in the hyperspace dimension. Romana wonders if the ship ran out of fuel and crash-landed, but the Doctor says it is still operational. He says that the segment of the key to time might be on board, and they should look for it immediately. Outside, K-9 says that his power levels are nearly empty, but Rumford urges him to keep up his defence while she activates the ray again, but no one appears. Suddenly the ogre break off their attack and K-9 says that they've most likely gone to find a source of blood in order to recharge their own energy levels. This theory proves to be correct when the ogre locate a pair of campers and kill them, draining them of all their bloods and fluids. A short while later, Rumford tries the ray again, but this time Vivian appears, now in her natural form as a tall silver-skinned humanoid. K-9 tells her to stay back, but he is too weak to stop her as she destroys the ray, thereby preventing the Doctor and Romana from returning. She then vanishes from sight, once again summoning the Ogre to her. Back on the ship, the Doctor and Romana see more chambers filled with the remains of different species, and the Doctor suggests that the vessel might have been a prison ship. They find one door that is different colour to the rest of them with writing on it. The Doctor breaks the seal on it, and they look inside to investigate. Suddenly a swarm of lights emerge from inside it, and order the Doctor and Romana not to touch them, saying that it is forbidden. The swarm, speaking with two voices, introduces itself as the Megara, and says that it is a hive mind, dispensing justice as judge, jury, and executioner. The doctor whispers to Romana that they need to leave, but they are stopped by the Megara. One of the voices asks who broke the seal on the door, and the doctor admits to being the, the culprit. The other voice speaks in his defence, and the voices then begin to argue back and forth over the law, and the doctor and Romana use the distraction as a chance to escape. The prosecuting Megara says that their escape is further proof of their guilt, and the swarm sets off in pursuit. The Doctor and Romana go back to the entry point, but they are surprised by the arrival of Vivian and the two Ogri. She tells them that she has destroyed the ray, and that they are now stranded in hyperspace forever. Part 4 Vivian orders the Ogri to kill them, but they are stopped by the arrival of the Megara, who say that the Doctor is their prisoner. They sentence him to death for his actions, but he says that he hasn't even stood trial yet. The accusing voice says that the trial already took place and the other voice says that he had spoken his defence. The doctor asks for a retrial, but is denied as he is a humanoid and therefore incapable of understanding their form of machine-based law. He then asks to appeal his sentence and Vivian scoffs at the idea of them entertaining his appeal. Romana says that Vivian is the reason that they are there, but the Megara tell her to stay quiet, lest she be sentenced to execution as well. They grant his appeal, but say that he only has two hours to make a case for himself. Romana quietly urges the Doctor to reveal their status as Time Lords, but he says it will not work as the Megara ignore concepts like race. He then begins his appeal and calls for Romana to give her testimony, putting a white counsellor's wig on as he does so. After undergoing a rather patronising swearing-in ceremony and being hooked up to a lie detector, Romana gives her account of their discovery of the Megara, as well as the other rooms filled with the dead bodies. The Doctor dismisses her and calls Vivian to stand next. Confused Vivian tries to bluff her way out of taking the stand, but then calls the Ogre to help her when the Megara insists that she give testimony. However, the Ogre shoot one of the Ogre with a beam of white light that reduces it to dust, leaving Vivian stunned. Once Vivian is giving testimony, the Doctor confides to Romana his belief that she is the reason the Megara on the ship in the first place in order to pass sentence on her. However, he says they need to find some evidence that will show that the Megara of who Vivian really is. Romana says that she will try to get back to the real space and find somebody to incriminate her. She leaves the room but is followed by the remaining Ogre. The Doctor then asks Vivian to be connected to the lie detector but his request is refused.
Back in real space, Rumper finishes repairing the ray under the careful instructions of K9. They activate it and Romana appears, but so too does the Ogre. Romana tells him to run and Rumford takes the ray with him. They then flee back to the cottage and Romana puts K9 on guard while she and Rumford look out for any evidence against Vivian. Back on the ship, the Doctor argues against the Megara and their logic, much to the amusement of Vivian. She suddenly agrees to being hooked up to the lie detector. She denies having opened the seals to their room and the Megara declared that she is telling the truth. The doctor says that they could be wrong, as even the most sophisticated machines can be wrong and deteriorate, especially after 4,000 years. Vivian is dismissed, and the accusing Megara says it is time for the doctor's execution. However, the doctor says that he has one more witness and calls for the Megara itself to take the stand. Meanwhile, Rumford laments the fact that they haven't been able to find any evidence. Suddenly, Romana calls out that she notices several cookbooks in the kitchen all have recipes scratched out, and Rumford reveals that Vivian stated that she is allergic to citric acid. Romana says that the allergy and her metabolism might be the reason why the ovary don't attack her. She asks Rumford for more information so K9 can find her planet of origin. Back on the ship, the Megara discuss whether or not there is precedent for the justice machines to take the stand, but they agree to do so anyway. The Doctor asks them what their purpose of being on the ship was, and they reveal that they were travelling to the planet Diplos to try a criminal. The Doctor asks what the criminal was on trial for, and they say that the criminal had stolen the Great Seal of Diplos, an artefact that had transmutable powers. They further reveal that they do not know what the criminal looks like, as one of the ship's officers was there to identify them, but they do know that it was female. The Doctor says that Vivian is the criminal that they are looking for, but the Megara says that he has no proof and therefore his appeal has failed. Meanwhile, K9 has managed to identify Vivian as being a native of Diplos, but suddenly the Ogre bursts into the cottage, forcing them to flee. They make their way to the Stone Circle, and Romana and Rumford set up the ray whilst K9 holds off the Ogre. Back in the ship, the Doctor prepares for his execution, but at the last moment he grabs hold of Vivian, forcing the Megara to use non-lethal force. The Doctor comes to a few moments later, and he asks the Megara to scan her brain to see if she is okay. Through the scan, they discover that she is the criminal that they are looking for. Suddenly, Romana arrives, pursued by the Ogre, but the Megara order it to stop and say that it will be returned to its home planet. The Megara then passed sentence on Vivian, saying that for her crime she will be imprisoned forever. They all return to real space. Before the Megara carry out their sentence, the Doctor takes off Vivian's necklace. The Megara then turned her into a stone before addressing the Doctor in relation to his own trial. However, the Doctor snaps his fingers and they disappear. He explains to a confused Romana that he set the controls on the ship to autopilot and the Megara were forced to return to it as it left. They make their way back to the TARDIS and Rumford comments on the fact that with everything that happened, the stone circle would have to be surveyed again. Romana thanks her for all her help and follows the Doctor and K9 into the TARDIS, which then takes off. Inside, the Doctor turns the necklace he took from Vivian into the next segment of the Key to Time and tries to connect it to the others under Romana's scrutinising eye. End of the story. So, people going to Stonehenge, be wary. Um, <laughs> but one place you don't have to be wary is the trivia spot. So, what have you got for us this week? Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So, the air date for the story is the 28th of October to the 18th of November, 1978. The writer of the story is David Fisher. This is the first of four Doctor Who writing credits for David. We'll see his work again in The Androids of Tara, The Creature from the Pit, and The Leisure Hive. David passed away in 2018. 
director of the story is Daryl Blake. This is the only Doctor Who credit for Daryl. So this story had the working titles of The Nine Maidens and The Stones of Time. I think Stones of Blood is cooler. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Um, this is the 100th Doctor Who story, as we have already mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the 15th anniversary of the program was going to be on obviously the 23rd of November 1978, which would have been five days after the broadcast of part four. So Daryl Blake knew that it was the 100th story. He knew that the 15th anniversary was coming up. And when episode one was running short, he was like, okay, why don't we do a thing Mm. that they'd have the Doctor and Romana and K-9 and you'd have K-9 singing Happy Birthday to the Doctor or something and they'd have a cake. And the way they describe it in the DVD special features is that, you know, it would have been this party, like celebrating the Doctor's 751st birthday there would be cake, he would have gotten a scarf. And everyone was like sort of really excited about it. They're like, oh, this is really cool. <laughs> like everyone was really looking forward to it. And Tom Baker mentioned it to, I don't know if it was to David Fisher or to somebody else. And it sort of suddenly went up the chain. He's like, oh, are you writing a, a birthday bit? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I haven't been commissioned to write a birthday thing. What are you on about? And so I went up the, the thing and producer Graham Williams vetoed the idea. Basically saying to Daryl, like, where the fuck do you come off adding this in? It's so self-indulgent. And like, it's kind of hard to tell. Like, from the way Daryl describes it, you don't know whether it's the fact that he's like, how dare you just assume you can just put in a big celebratory anniversary thing in your episode? Or whether it's the fact that Graham Williams is like, why would we do something so cheesy to celebrate the anniversary. So I think it was perhaps a little column A and a little column B, but apparently there was really a sort of a, how fucking dare you? <laughs> yeah. No to it. The thing is though, they'd already ordered the cake. Oh. So none of this was written. None of it was filmed. They'd ordered a cake. So the cast and the crew ate it. Hey. <laughs> like, and it seems like Daryl sort of makes the comment. He's like, so instead we get a couple of minutes of them trying to put together the key to time. As if to go, as if this fucking story needs more mention of the game to tell A nice rap party present, though. Yeah. Um, another thing with Daryl is that Daryl was not a big fan of different mediums for recording. We've talked before how you have videotape when you're in the studio and then you have film when you're on location. And we've said before that like, there are some stories where the difference between the two of them is ridiculous. It's so obvious. The camera mm. quality is so different. And Daryl Blake, he didn't like that. He didn't like the fact that you could clearly tell which was filmed where. So instead, he used videotape to do the external, the exterior shots on location rather than using film, because usually it's film. But instead, he used videotape because he wanted it to be consistent throughout, which I actually thought was quite good. And it worked quite well, I think, yeah, um, in this story. Because, like, I remember, I, I think we talked about it when we did Robot, because I think Robot was the first time that they ever did external on videotape. And it was so jarring after seasons upon seasons of everything, everything external being on film. Yeah, so 
Darbeck didn't like that. He wanted to be consistent. Interestingly, though, um, one of the main reasons for them to keep it consistent would have actually been for the nighttime shoots. Mm. But all of the nighttime shots were actually shot in the studio. Not on location. Oh. Which, that studio looked really fucking good for those nighttime shots. It like did. As in, like... Like when the doctor's being sacrificed, all, like, all those shots in the circle at night, that was all in the studio. So we have Web of Fear and Planet of Evil, and now the Stones of Blood for best interior setting. Yeah, like I mean, I don't think for Stones of Blood, like you'll notice that they only ever like point in like one direction. Yeah. Um, they didn't go full on Planet of Evil with it; didn't have a big. Mm elaborate set yeah way way smaller it was a standard size set just with the stone things or whatever um but yeah it was, it was i thought it was really good um and one of the other reasons why they did it that way was because a they had more control over lighting whatever but also because um, one of the um designers of the stone things was like i'm not fucking Having some Egypt shuffling around in that up and down. <laughs> that, no. We'll do it in the studio. It'll be fine. So, in the original script, the Doctor would have actually been seen at the end of part one, leading Romana off the cliff. Tom Baker said, no. He wasn't doing it. He was like, it would upset young viewers to actually see the Doctor behaving in that. And he felt like, possessed Doctor? No, that's done to death. We're not going to do it. So that's why we only ever hear his voice calling Romana. Mm. Tom refused to actually be seen pushing her or whatever. Um, which I can I can I can understand him wanting to avoid that. I can agree with that. Um the location of the DeVries house, it was actually a business college. <laughs> so they had three days of location filming, which is about usually you get like one day per episode, so yeah, three days makes makes sense. And between days two and three, the TARDIS disappeared. The students of the college stole it. Oh, for fuck's sake. And moved it to a nearby quarry. But can you imagine, like, you're on the crew, you get up one day, you open the curtains from your window, and you're like, where's the TARDIS gone? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they stole it. There's an interesting thing. So, John Leeson, we've said before how John Leeson voices the bestest boy. Mm-hmm. And John Leeson would actually go on location with them. But obviously he wouldn't be up with them filming because he'd just be in the way. So he'd be down in a van with a sort of radio mic so they could still hear his voice. So it wasn't someone just off camera reading lines. Mm-hmm. It was they could actually hear John essentially through the dog. Oh, wow. But one thing that they all seemed to love to do was they all loved doing the Times crossword puzzle. And John Leeson apparently is big into his crossword puzzles. He actually made puzzles for them at one point, which I just think is the cutest thing ever. Mm. But apparently a well-recounted story, particularly of this particular um, shoot, was at one point Tom is they're doing a scene, whatever, Tom and K9 doing a scene, blah, blah, blah. And then they call cut and they're doing resets and whatever. So Tom sits down, takes out his crossword puzzle, taps the dog on the head, and is like, John, are you there? <laughs> and John's like, yeah, what's up? And he's like, 
do you have your Times crossword with you? And so John's like, yeah. And so they start doing the crossword over the radio with John Dewey in his K9 voice because he's John Leeson and he never gives up an opportunity to do the K9 voice. But obviously they were in public. So there was people like, you know, photographers and, you know, just hawkers and like just kids watching. And all they saw was the doctor and K9 doing the Times crossword puzzle because you could hear John's voice giving Tom the answers. <laughs> that is amazing. Which I just love. But I love, as one of the actual things, like the, the Getting Blood from the Stones featurette on the DVD is actually really, really good. It's one of the best featurettes I've watched in a while, actually. Um, so if you do have access to the DVD, I would suggest that you watch it because it's really good. Um, but I love that particularly with John Leeson, like it, it would have been very easy for him to be seen as like this sort of extra person off the side, whatever. Mm. He's not really part of the cast. He's up, But they they clearly got along really well with him. And like, I love hearing little stories like that where John's involved. Yeah. And he's not just the guy who does the voice off the side. You know, he's, he's part of the team. He's part of the crew. And I absolutely love it. Mm. Another thing is that according to this particular featurette, the scene where the Doctor and Romana um, are trying to transport back to Earth um, and they're sort of pulled up really, really tight in a very sort of, it sort of reminded me of Galaxy Quest, the sort of the shot they had of the two of them stood on the X and whatever. Mm. Uh, apparently, again, it was a little bit of an in-joke because Tom Baker was trying to play up the Doctor's complete and utter like asexuality. Like you've got this beautiful woman pressed up against him and he's just completely nonplussed and oblivious to it. And they were like, that was kind that was like intentional an in-joke of the fact that like, oh, the doctor doesn't see her as a sexual being or whatever. So Tom just played it completely nonplussed. It kind of reminds me of like Tom's been doing this the whole time. And if you remember like back in um there's a bit in Robot, a bit in Ark in Space, in Genesis of the Daleks. Well, he was always very tender with Sarah mm. Jane. Like, he never held her quite properly. He always like, just moved her from one place <laughs> to another. And the hugs were very brief and suddenly just like smacking you into his chest and back out again. It sort of reminded me of that um, in a way. Yeah. We see that Romana gave the TARDIS wardrobe a bit of a workout. Mm-hmm. She's wearing three different outfits in this story. And there were so many costume changes between scenes that at one point the entire scene had to be redone because she was actually wearing the wrong outfit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> which, which I just love. A couple of other things from Daryl Blake. I'm kind of disappointed we don't get more Daryl Blake stories because he clearly like he clearly was really passionate about it. And again, strongly recommend that featurette because it's really, really good. But he said that uh, the Megara, the little bally light things, Mm. Um, they were operated by two puppeteers they were dressed in black and shot against a black background so that only the lights would show up and the lights themselves um, were that sort of thing like where it only lights up when you speak Yeah. so you know like like a disco light or whatever that, that changes or whatever um, originally they were meant to be floating metal orbs the way Daryl describes it is the year before something came out you may have heard of it it's called Star Wars Mm. And in Star Wars, at one scene, there's a floating metal orb. You mean Dr. Ball, MD? <laughs> Dr. Ball, but I think he also means like the trainer droid thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Cause he didn't because he said like a, a small metal ball, um, and he was like, "No, like we can't do that because they brought it." Personally, I think this is way better. Mm. Personal opinion. The ogre killing the two campers. It was inserted at the last minute, and apparently the reason why they put it in is because they were aware of the fact that the ogre could look a bit comedic. These big giant stones going around, bumping into things, and you know the idea that like. The ogre kill people by falling on them and crushing them to death and, and that kind of thing. So that's why they put it in the scene, which is actually quite a horrific scene when you think about it. It, it is. It's fucking... In, it, it's really intense because it's... What happens is, the, I think the female camper puts her hand on the stone and then it's like that Indiana Jones type fucking thing where the stone just starts to glow and the next thing is her hand is completely skeletal. It's like down to the bone, and that's like and then like it fades to red. Yeah, and your mind is just screaming. It's very it reminded me much of like a Jason Voorhees film. Mm. Yeah, do you know, the young couple, your man's shirtless, mm-hmm. tying up his jeans. It's a bit, it's a bit much. Um, but yeah, but that's that's why that was included. It wasn't originally in the script. They they're kind of afraid that people think the ogre were funny. I, I'm really glad that they did because it adds to the presence of the ogre in the story. Yeah, I agree. A couple of things that people probably have caught up on, you know, in terms of the writing of this story. There's a couple of, you know, nods to British mythology. So Vivian Fay mm. and her earlier alias, Lady Morgana Montcalm, clearly Morgan Le Fay, mm-hmm. uh, King Arthur's half sister, the sorceress in the Legends of Camelot. The word, I can't remember how they pronounced it. Kaliak. Kaliak um, is a Gaelic word, uh, meaning old woman, um, and is associated with several entities in Celtic mythologies. The ogre were named after ogres, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the reference to Dr. Thomas Borlase was an homage to two celebrated historians, Thomas Price and William Borlase. The Megara also refers to Megara, one of the Furies in Greek or Roman mythology, also called the Arrhenius or the Eumenides. So the goddesses who were, they were goddesses who persecuted those they perceived as guilty of a terrible crime. Also one of the most off-putting group of bosses in the God of War franchise. Yes. There's something just really unsettling about them in that game. Yes, I would agree. Also one of the most upsetting Episodes of Charmed. Oh, yeah. Isn't that where Shannon Doherty's sister's name, who name I can't remember, isn't that the one where she dies and Piper? It's the home? aftermath of that. It's a couple of episodes later. Yeah. Or maybe it's the following episode, I can't remember, but it's the aftermath of Shannon Doherty's character, Prue, Prue. dying. And Piper and becomes Piper, one. Piper loses her mind. Yeah. I, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of Charmed, but I do remember that one. I just remember the breakdown scene at the end of it. It's like heart strong. Anyway, back to Doctor Who. Mm. So, obviously, part of the story of the stones themselves is that the number of them changes. Do you know? Such and such said there was nine, and such and such said there was whatever. Interestingly, there is actually a myth or a, a legend behind the actual stone circle that was used for filming. So the actual stone circle is a collection of it. So you have a stone circle 
And then a little bit further uphill, I think, you have another standalone tall stone. And then off the side, you have a number of stones that are kind of leaning into each other. Mm. And so you've got that the standalone tall stone was meant to be the king of this invading force. The stone circle was meant to be the king's men. And the stones that were off the side and all kind of up as you were meant to be the king's knights. And so there's this sort of legend that the king's men, so the circle of stones, that it's impossible to count the same number twice. Mm. And if you manage to count the same number three times, one of two things will happen to you. One, a fiery pit will open and drag you down to hell. Or two, you'll get your life's desire or whatever. History lesson over. Again, there's a featurette on the DVD. I encourage you to watch it. It's quite interesting. Why why is it like nearly every interpretation of Celtic mythology, it's like either something really, really good happens or no, actually something really, really bad happens. It's like there's never anything in the middle. (laughs) Um, But during a break in filming, there was actually uh, a group of children who were tasked with counting the king's men as part of their school assignment. And... You know, they were expecting to get 77, right? That's that's how many stones there actually were, right? And they got 80. And they were really confused until they realized that they'd been counting the props as well. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Because um, actually, brilliant. like, they were saying that, like, the stone props, the ogre props, actually looked really good. Mm. Like, the guys went to a lot of detail... They clearly studied the stones very well. They molded them and whatever. That people actually genuinely, people were like genuinely confused, being like, "Holy shit, <laughs> is it actually a thing? What the hell?" Lastly, before we go on to our cast, originally um, Daryl wanted to do this thing where, in order to establish that the Megra spacecraft was a prison vessel, he wanted to have old monsters on it. So mm. um, we see the Wirren, which is really it's a really yeah. good callback. Yeah, it's um, great. They also apparently had permission to use a sea devil, though we didn't get one of those on the show. Um, but so he's like, "Oh, this would be really cool, like to have like all these previous enemies." And basically, the higher ups were like, "No, no," because see, there's this thing called copyright, my friend, and we would have to pay all of those other writers just mm. to have the character in it for a second. So I think they, they managed to negotiate two, or else it was like that they had the rights to two. Um, but the only one that we saw was the Wirren. One thing I loved about the Wern was when the when the doctor looks in and then comes back and you can actually just see this look of oh fuck <laughs> on his face. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's go on to our cast. So we only have three members of our cast that we're really going to be talking about today. So as Amelia Wumford, we have Beatrix Lehman. This is her only Doctor Who credit. Her non-Who credits include Out of the Unknown, Paul Temple, Zed Cars, and Doctor Finley's Casebook. She was very popular with the cast. They all absolutely love her. And she actually had a really good interaction with John Leeson. So John Leeson had a sort of side gig of taking photographs. He used to take, you know, like the the photos that would be in the, like your headshot photo that would be oh, in right. the, the, the cast listings and, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, he had a sort of side gig where he used to take those pictures. And so he took a picture of her. And showed it to her and she really loved the picture. And so one day she came up and she gave him like this sort of brown paper bag, like a shopping bag. I was like, oh, John, that's for you. 
He's about to put his expected to be like fucking fruit or something. <laughs> he didn't know what it was. And he opened it up and he took out this lovely like 1936 model camera. Oh. And she'd apparently been given it as a gift, like a very heartfelt gift by someone whose name I've since forgotten. But she gave it to him because she liked his photograph. He took a nice photograph of her once, so she gave him this camera. And she's like, I think you'll get more use of it than I do. That's really sweet. It's very, very sweet. What's additionally very sweet, do you know why she accepted the role? No. Because she really loved animals and she was curious as to how canine worked. She didn't do it to be on Doctor Who. She did it because she wanted to work with canine. Oh, I can't imagine that went well down with Tom. <laughs> I don't know. It's so sweet. <laughs> I don't is. think he would have minded. But no. actually, like himself and Beatrix had a very interesting thing because she was quite old at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it took her longer to bring her lines to the front of her mind. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it was funny because Tom obviously is used to sort of playing a bit fast and loose or whatever. And so she'd be there to him like, that's not the way you did it yesterday. And he's like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry or like there's one point where they say it in the in the documentary you can kind of see where she's talking about so it's where she's introducing herself and she's clearly looking for the words and then so you can tell that like the doctor's a little bit put out you can people are like was that tom being odd that someone was being more eccentric than him <laughs> like maybe Sadly, um, Beatrix Lehman actually passed away in July of 1979, so less than a year after oh. this episode went out, which gives her handing down that camera actually a little bit more, um, a little bit more behind it. Um, Vivian Fay, otherwise known as the Kazer or Cesar, whatever the whether pronounced it, um, of Diplos, was played by Susan Engel. Is the only on-screen Doctor Who credit for Susan, though she has done some work with the Big Finish. Her non-who credits include Public Eye, Crown Court, Inspector Morse, and The Cedar Tree. Lastly, as Leonard DeVries, or just Mr. DeVries, as he's mostly referred to, we have Nicholas McArdle. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit here for Nicholas. His non-who credits include Zed Cards, All Creatures Great and Small, The Sweeney, The O'Neill Line, and Are You Being Served? A lot of classics in there in mm-hmm. Nicholas's repertoire. Another random thing that they were talking about on the DVD feature, like, I wasn't really paying much attention at this point because my dinner had arrived, but apparently, Tom was kind of homeless for a long time. He didn't actually have a house of his own um, at this time. And to the point where his manager was charged with like finding him somewhere to live. But apparently, he used to just be like, yeah, no, no, I'll you know, keep on someone's couch or on the floor or whatever. And so he really looked forward to when they were going on location. He could stay in a hotel and have people poo each other and put because i know that he kind of bounced around like i think there was a he was in one relationship where he just stayed at her place the whole time he had no fixed address like mm. i don't even think he had he like was forwarding stuff to her address at all like yeah because i know like when when liz left when Liz Layton left he threw a party and they say he threw a party in his back garden but mm. i don't think it was actually his back garden yeah, I, think, it's, like I, said, I think it was the, the back garden of his partner that he was with yeah but yeah, but I just love this idea of like Tom is just like such a fuck. Like Tom's doctor is like the vagabond doctor, and Tom was just like that in person. <laughs> but yeah, in case you haven't cottoned on to it already, watch the featurettes on this one because they're really good. Some of the featurettes, I'm not gonna lie, some of the featurettes can be a bit shit. The featurettes on this one were really good. They had a Hammer Horror featurette as well about the influence of Hammer Horror on Doctor Who. 
um, that was that was really interesting as well. So. Cool, definitely take a look at that. I actually suppose, like speaking of the the horror element, that I didn't say it at the time, and I should have. Uh, the cliffhanger ending to part one, mm. one of the best cliffhanger endings in the entire series. It was so. Is fucking... it because it was a cliffhanger? Uh, no, that's actually just <laughs> that that just kind of sprung on me now. Um, <laughs> no, it was just legitimately it was done so well. It was done really, really well, and we'll talk about that a bit more. I think when we talk about Romana, but I agree with you that was done really well. Can't believe I didn't fucking peg that it was a cliff for fuck. <laughs> <sighs> uh. So we have our summary and trivia completed. So now it's time for our character discussion. So as always, we have the Doctor. We have our companions of Romana and K9. We then have any story-based companions. I think Amelia Rumford kind of qualifies this time around. Mm-hmm. We haven't had a story-based companion proper for a while, so yeah, good to have another story-based companion. Mm-hmm. Um, prominent characters. I didn't have anyone. I just had villains. I put down the Megara as a prominent character. Yeah, I wasn't sure where to classify them. I, I put them in prominent character because of what they're meant to represent because mm. like it's the I actually have kind of talking points about their what they're meant to represent the mm. perception of them so that's why I have them prominent characters okay. yeah. and then we have our villains of Vivian Fay and Mr. DeVries yeah because we've already talked about how cool the ogre actually looked <laughs> yeah the ogre aren't really characters no, let's be honest they're not, they're not. <laughs> um, so as is our more recent tradition, the person who does the socials is the person who goes first, and this week that is you. So, yes. Paddington, thoughts on the Doctor, please. Oops, I said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. <laughs> he does that so much in this thing. You're a genius, what? Yeah, by the way, you're, you're actually, that's a really good idea. <laughs> um, this is a really good showing from Tom. And it kind of goes back to the early seasons. Like, there is, and I've, I think I'll, you'll probably agree to this, is that there is a huge element or like airs of the Hinchcliffe era in this story. Oh, 110%. Yeah, it's like this is real Hinchcliffe type stuff, like between the direction, the writing, the cinematography, the whole lot. It's very Hammer Horror Hinchcliffe style. Um, and I suppose with that, it goes back to, I suppose Tom kind of gets transported back to that because like David Fisher was like clearly paying attention to what made the character so enjoyable because everything that we have always loved about Tom is on display here in spades. Like his dynamic with Romana is really grown and like the respect is there now. Yes, there is still like the odd bit of uh i was still in charge here like the whole like, here why don't you go take a look at the cons or get her next course yes yes romana i'm just going to plot her next course just, <laughs> um i love that his fondness for k9 is on display um mm. and the delight like as i said the delight in his voice when romana says that she can sh- save k9 mm. it just shows how much he loves that stupid tin dog of his <laughs> um Putting the wig on for the trial, I that that's such a fourth doctor thing to do. But at the same vein, 
any of the doctors could actually do that. You could see any yeah. of them doing that. And I don't think we've seen it for a while, but again, it's that nice little kind of true line of, you can see this as being a character thing, not just an, a regeneration thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have a, I would lay on my notes, I'll say it now because it ties into what you just said there. It's interesting that like we're we're sort of unofficially comparing this to Keys of Marinus, right? We're saying like, oh, yeah, let's yeah. see how the score goes or whatever. Yeah. The final episode, well, the second to final episode of the Keys of Marinus includes a trial. Yep. Where the doctor is acting as the defense attorney. Yeah. Like I no, like I don't have I don't think I have a really negative thing to say about Tom in this one, which is great. No, I'd agree. Like he still clearly has a few issues with Romana being more intelligent than him. Oh yeah. But again, I think I think after last week, (coughs) sorry, after last week, that's moved over to being all on good fun. Yes. It's not petty. It's yeah. And I think what really signified that for me, um, and one of the things I'm really enjoying about this season and the growth of the season is, like, the look on his face when Romana is so distrustful of him. Mm. It breaks his heart, hearts, Mm. that she doesn't trust him. And, like, he's almost distraught at the idea that someone would use his likeness to hurt her. Hmm. And that's not something that we've seen from the doctor, from this doctor, I think, really ever. That sort of, like, his companion's afraid of him. Mm. Do you know? And the way Tom played that was so good. And, like, the way it sort of shows how much he cares for Romana, at the idea that, like, his mere presence is scaring her clearly affects him like he doesn't just go all bluster and of course it wasn't me what are you doing you stupid like there's none of that he's very careful with her and you could tell he's like can i tell her tell her like tell her who i who i am mm-hmm. do you know um and I, I i i kind of love that in a way um like i said the whole court case thing i thought was brilliant the way tom played it was so good so true to the doctor again you could like swap that out for John, for Bill, for Patrick. It would have worked with all of them, and Tom sells it in a way that you could close your eyes and it could be any one of them. Yeah, do you know? Absolutely. Um, while still being Tom, do you know what I mean? Mm. Which which is great. I thought his interactions with everyone were really good. Um, like I said, his interactions with Mary Tam. I'm really, I'm actually really disappointed that I know this is her only season because mm. I'm actually really liking their dynamic together. I think it's, I think it's developing really well. And again, the way he is with K9 is lovely. Um, the way he is with um, Emilia Rumford is great. He's got great dynamics and everything. The only thing that surprised me a little, and I won't say it's a negative, because I took it as more as he was trying to get a rise out of him, but I was a little surprised the way he was downplaying Druidism. You know, when he's talking to DeVries and he's like, oh, well, I just think it was invented in the 1800s. Like, it's not, like, Druidism isn't real. Hmm. Do you know? Which I was kind of surprised about initially. I was like, what the fuck are you on about? Because um, that seems very not the doctor. Like, the doctor would know about, like, Druidism and stuff like that. So I kind of took it more as he was trying to get a rise out of DeVries, like, get a response out of him. Hmm. No, I I, def- I think you're, you're on the money with that one because, like... 
Druidism is still is still a thing, and it's practiced by certain by people. Like you wouldn't assume to actually be like when you when you think of druids, you think of like children of the forest. You know, flowers mm. like your fucking weirdos that uh, live like in the woods and hemp pots or that kind of stuff. You don't expect like suit and tie, mm. Lord of the Manor type thing. Um, unless it's Christopher Lee, in which case it's like fucking all bets are off. But uh, no, I think you're right. I think he was trying to get a rise out of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think I really liked him in this one. Again, it is, it is very reminiscent of um, Pyramids of Mars or, you know, um, any of the sort of hammer horror stories. Even like you know, his first season in general, do you know, it, it is very Philip Hinchcliffe era Speaking of, type of story. I th- I'm a bit, I'm a bit mad at Tom. I, I, I'm 100% his, behind his logic on why he didn't want to shoot the scene of him being the one to push over Romana. Hmm. But actually it's a kind of um, a bone with both um, the director's name again, sorry, is, is it Derek? Daryl. Daryl, sorry, Daryl. I want to pick with Daryl and Tom. Can you imagine that scene of the Doctor pushing Romana off the cliff on film and with the camera on Tom as he approaches her? That, in a very Ian in... Or not Ian, well, like Ian Martyr. Harry, Harry, Harry in... The, yeah, that could have... Because like, Tom has this... When he plays the villain, he has this amazing thing to like lower the head but raise the eyes so as if it's like... Mm-hmm. He's boring into your soul, like that could have been a really intense <laughs> like scene. I think it would have been amazing, but I understand why he didn't do it. Yeah, I know absolutely. I said I hundred percent get the whole thing of the kids can't be scared of the doctor. Yeah, it's the adult in us. It's like no, 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 come on, scare the shit out of us. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved if they'd filmed it and just it was a deleted scene or something that you could watch later. Um, but yeah. So, we have the Doctor, and then we have his two companions. So, do you want the bestest boy first, or Romana? Um, I think I'll go with Romana first. Okay. Uh, Please. Bold Romana. Now, what will happen if K9 needs to remember how to play tennis? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, the Doctor says a line, uh, like, anyone for tennis, and he explains what that expression means. And then Romana asks, what's tennis? So K9 says, like, oh, do you mean lawn, table, or there was another one I can't remember what he said. I can't remember what that was. Uh, and she's like, oh, forget it. At which point he purges his memory banks of anything to do involving tennis. And I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, That's not Romana's fault. <laughs> <laughs> this is another great showing from her here. Really, really good. Um I like that her side of the story is just as interesting as to what the Doctor is doing. Because mm. like, they're separated for a fair bit here. And it's great seeing her holding her holding her own and holding the interest of the audience. Um, I liked how she, she came to the same conclusion about Vivian as the Doctor did, in a di- albeit like in different circumstances. Because, again, that just goes to prove just how intelligent she is. Mm. Um... Her interactions with Rumford is, are great. And like her interactions with the Doctor and Rumford are great because it's this whole thing of the two of them are like, oh, for fuck's sake, what is she talking about now? Um, <laughs> but like, it's a really, like, there's really great chemistry with everyone here. Like, mm. 
fantastic. Definitely, I won't say it's the best we've seen with our supporting cast, but it's definitely going to be up there in that top 10 mark, I think, for yeah, me anyway. I'd agree. Um, on speaking of Rumford, I think that Romana will take travelling with the Doctor any day of the week over than riding a bike with Rumford. <laughs> um, like, there's just so much. Like, in three short stories, like, we're seeing something kind of almost akin to Leela in the mm. sense of three sh- short stories and the level of confidence and the character growth is, is amazing. Like, yes, you're watching this you're watching the key to time story arc. Mm. But again, we're seeing another story arc, which is Romana's development. And like you, I am kind of getting annoyed at the fact that in three stories, she, this particular version of her is gone. Yeah. Cause I've, I don't think I've, I've seen bits of Lala Ward, but only ever like clips. Like I've never seen mm. anything in context. Um, but I'm really liking Mary Tam. Mm. Um, and her version of Romana. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, and this is just like speaking as someone who hadn't watched these episodes before, I think a lot of people tend to skip Romana one. Do you know, when they think back to the Doctor's companions, like the fourth Doctor's companions, they go, oh yeah, you Sarah Jane and Romana, or Sarah Jane Leela and Romana. And when they say Romana, they think of Lala Ward. Yeah. Romana and too. they don't really think of Mary Tam as much, I don't think. Oh, and like, um, it, which is sad. It, it is sad. And I'll admit like that, like after my see i remember i said like and it was probably the wrong thing to do but i had set myself the goal to watch doctor who by a certain time so that meant a story a day and i was just burning through stuff and i was like i don't think i had the full i don't think i appreciated some people's runs as much as i could have like uh and like certain stories i don't i think i just lost the appreciation of them and that's why I love doing this podcast now because it's it's one episode a day, and I get everything is getting a chance to soak in. So I'm yeah, yeah I'm really happy that I'm enjoying this time with Romana now. Yeah, like for me, like with Romana in this story, I really like her in this story. I love the way she's interacting with people other than the Doctor, because that's been a nice development again of her character. Mm. Like she's left with Vivian and Amelia for a while on her own. And she's, she's working away with them, like, having conversation, like, helping them with their research, all this kind of stuff. And, like, they're, like, she is a little bit kind of like, what the fuck are you about every now and again? But, like, she's totally holding her own, hmm. which I think is really, really good. We get to see her intelligence, which is great. I would challenge one thing on the intelligence part. I do not like the way her research and critical thinking was treated in episode four because there's no reason for it what, sorry, what? so she discovers all she does all this research with rumford they find mm. out about the citric acid and they do all of this research but she never gets to unveil it because the megara deduced the same thing by just reading your one's mind like literally the megara literally saying the exact same thing that Romana's discovering for herself. So why have Romana discover it? She never tells anyone about it other than Rumford. And it for me it kind of took like I was expecting Romana to come in and save the day with her evidence. She never got to present her evidence. She just also figured it out. Which I thought took away from her a bit. It's like what the fuck was she doing it for so? 
like what was the point of that if they were just going to have the mega figure it out for themselves i see no that is a very valid point but i suppose how i would maybe put a silver lining on it is if you take that notion where she's able to figure out something by you by the critical research mm-hmm. and you just apply it to her overall character going across the three stories she's just as capable of finding the answer as the doctor is and she like in like in her side story she's just as capable of coming up with the actual resolution to the story it's just here she was in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah but like personally that's that silver lighting's a bit shit because oh like yeah like I, 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 a, the doctor didn't figure fuck all out by the way he knew that your one was the fugitive Mm, but he didn't that's know, all he deduced on his own. But he didn't all know that he she was <laughs> Diplosia. The Megara di- read her mind and mm. found out everything else. Mm. So to say that like Romana could find it on her own, what the doctor... No, Romana did research and used critical thinking skills to figure something out. The doctor had a Hail Mary pass of, if I can get them to read her mind, they'll realise she's the one they're looking for. But he knew nothing about her, where she was from, none of it. He knew none mm. of it <laughs> until they told him. Mm. And so for me to give her those great scenes with Rumford, to have her figuring all that out, is all fantastic for her character development. But from a story point of view, what the fuck was the point? Because she never got to present the evidence. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Like, you know at least have her burst in and start giving her evidence and then have the Megara be like, no, we don't want to talk about it. And then they finally read your one's mind. Mm. But Roman has already told them some of it. They're like, oh, fuck it, you're right. Jesus Christ. Um, like That, for me, was a bit shit. <laughs> because mm. I was like, what was the point of having Romana figure it out? You know you're like a character when you get this angry on their behalf. <laughs> <sighs> I do, though, because I, I was really liking the scenes where she was figuring it out, and I was waiting for her to burst in and save the day. And she doesn't. Mm. She turns up and they've already figured it out. And I'm like... Then what the fuck was the point? <laughs> Other than to... No. There was no point. Other than sending her back means that she can build a thing again. And yeah. She didn't even do that because fucking Rumford built it herself. Yeah. There was no point in sending her back. There was literally nothing. <laughs> like, she could have just as easily gotten a wander around the fucking ship and found out the exact same information mm. and still not used it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For me, it just it, it bothered me. Um, could have had Romana because, take you on the Ogre. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like I said, it just bothered me because it showed all this great potential of the character, it showed the intelligence of the character. But it didn't move along the plot because mm. the other character used mind powers to do it. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's good about shit. Um, the other thing is, this isn't a criticism. Mm-hmm. It's just an observation. Daryl Blake has a serious obsession with Mary Tam's feet. Yeah. Like, a... We get it. She's running around in no shoes. But like, he holds on her feet for a very long time. There's, there's a lot of gratuitous foot nudity here. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> like, while she's walking, 
zoom in on her feet and hold on just like yeah okay we get it while she's hanging from the cliff hold on her fucking feet i'm like um as you mentioned in the trivia there's three costumes on display here which was your pick mm. of the week i quite like her sort of country outfit the one with, with her, the, the with her hat? yeah with her yeah. paddy hat yeah I quite like that one. Yeah, I did like her flowy sort of hippie outfit too, but I like I liked the country one better. Mm. How about you? I think it's because of the the paddy hat. The paddy hat makes it. Mm. Um. But yeah. Cool. So, on to bestest boy. Yes. Oh, the bestest boy. Yeah, uh, he's the real hero here. <laughs> he really like, is. Like, like, like John Leeson does such an amazing job here. He like he puts such emotion into the voice work. Then you forget that it's a prop, and like you think that K nine is actually on death's door, like that. The sequence where the ogre bursts into the um, the house and K nine mm-hmm. fights it off and goes after it, and then you come in and you see like K nine is like just ripped, you're torn to shreds and everything. It's almost as if like you know a faithful hound has tried to mm. defend its master and is now against like a, a wolf or a lion or something and is like just did I do a good job type thing you know mm. um it, it was oh, it was like, watching I was like no this was very very emotional um which again down to like fantastic work by John Leeson and the doctor and Romana selling it wonderfully I think I am trying to imagine that in the rehearsal room, though, that like, you've got John Leeson like on his back, back yeah, with like, his legs up, with like, the hooves <laughs> in the air, and is like, <laughs> "Kiss me, Hardy." Um, we do need to get you to a con at some point to meet John Leeson because John oh, Leeson is such a sweetheart. Absolutely, he is so lovely. Like, I've, I've met him twice now, and like on both occasions, like because Brian, the first time I met him was two thousand and. Nine. Nine. And he wasn't even back in the Sarah Jane Adventures fully yet at that no. point. Um but like he was such a sweetheart. And I met him again back in 2019. Um and he's still a total he's so adorable. Um and like outside of like the K9, you know, being absolute hero, emotional, heartbreaker mm-hmm. type thing. I have to like admire the fact that you know, for someone that doesn't know about the Dunkirk spirit, as Rumford calls it, he has it in spades because he just doesn't give up. Yeah. Um, but like aside from, aside from like the feats of bravery which we've kind of seen from Kane, I know for the last while, like I love his interactions with specifically, specifically with Rumford. Like mm. I love him with Rumford in the story because he is so patient and reassuring with her while he is instructing her to rebuild the ray dish. Yeah. It's it's amazing. And like marked you know, Mark Two is getting up there in terms of like who's the better one, Mark One or Mark Two. Um but yeah, no, this is another fantastic showing from K9. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, you know, bestest dog is bestest and like I do love his interactions with Rumford. Like you said, he's so patient with her. Like, A, he took his responsibility to defend her very seriously. Mm. But he's so patient with her. And he's like, you know, 
you can rebuild. And she's like, I don't know how. He's like, I'll guide you. Like, I'll show you. It's okay. I don't have hands. Mm. But like, we can do it together. It's I don't have hands. You do. So we'll do it together. And then like, when she's like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, no, no, no I checked it. It's fine. I was supervising. You're okay. Mm. It'll work. Don't worry. He's very, very sweet with her, which I think is lovely. Um, and there is there is one bit in it when he when he goes off like to be um, a hunting dog to to find Romana, and I love it because the doctor's like, "Do you remember how you've always wanted to be a bloodhound?" And he's like, "No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I've never wanted to be a bloodhound." What Good. the fuck, you? <laughs> yes, you have negative. Yes, you have. No, stop. <laughs> um, oh. But I love the fact that the the crew who managed K9 mm-hmm. took great pride in that sh- the shot that comes after that because the doctor is like you know find her he's like cool I, I know her scent and I know her this and I know her that whatever and then they have to pan up to Tom while they turn him around because it's a very small turning area on grass to try and turn Kanan around and then he sort of starts trundling and then he goes boom and he just sort of, <laughs> he sort of rushes off and apparently the guys who manipulated him were very happy with that scene because K9 went quickly for once and they were delighted. Um the sad the sad like dying K9 was devastating to watch. I will say one thing though. I don't know if John was given enough time to work out how to properly modulate his voice for it. Because sometimes it does just sound like a man. <laughs> yes. There's certain yeah. bits. like Because he's obviously never had to do that for K9 before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they didn't give him enough time to practice what that would sound like. Because usually K9 speaks in short sentences. And this is sort of like a pseudo monologue yeah. <laughs> going on. And you could tell that like there's bits where John has to breathe. <laughs> And it sort of sounds a bit strange, um, but I loved the I love that they included that though, and I love that they have the doctor like being like, no, I don't want to just scrounge. Like, a the fact that K nine's like scrounge me for parts. Yeah, I've lived a good life. <laughs> um, and you have the doctor being like, no, because I was in my mind going, holy shit, like, is this where Mark three comes from? Is Mark two just incredibly fucking short lived? Because I don't know. Because obviously we haven't gotten there yet. I know Sarah Jane has a mark has the Mark Three, but was the Mark Three made for her, or does Mark Two become Mark Three at one point and then gets left with her? I don't know because we haven't gotten to that point yet. Yeah, and don't, I, don't spoil it. For I, I, yeah, yeah, because like I remember like la- the last thing we were talking about this last week, and you were like, and I was like, wait, 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 is she asking me or is she just kind of throwing it out there and giving me the eye to say, don't you dare say a fucking thing? Yeah, such a face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, there was also one other scene that I loved that again it kind of goes back to what I was saying during the trivia and even though like they found the prop annoying mm-hmm. to deal with um, it sort of goes back to like I almost see it as the love for John yeah, which is when the Doctor and K9 go into the house and they there was one point where they see a dead body or something they see something and he covers his eyes. <laughs> the doctor covers his eyes. And I'm like, that's adorable. And like, yeah, it's the, you're told that DeVries and Marta's body have been crushed to a pulp. And like, you're left with your imagination then 
to because mm. like that's that adds to it as well, you know. Mm. But he just covers like K9's like eyes, which I just think is adorable. So yeah, um, K9 bestest dog, and yeah, mm-hmm. love him. <laughs> he is the bestest, and really want to drag you to a con to meet John Lisa at some point. Cool. Hopefully, you'll be soon. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. And then we have our story-based companion, yes. Miss Amelia Rumford. Or sorry, was it Professor Amelia Rumford? Professor Amelia Rumford. Professor Amelia Rumford. Professor Amelia Rumford. Yes. Um, who reminds me of Amelia Ducat from Scenes mm-hmm. of Doom, but also just because of there's a certain facial resemblance, elderly Maggie Smith. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I actually looked up to see if they were related in some way because like there were times where the, the resemblance is fucking uncanny. Um like, what can I fucking say? Like I loved this character. She's amazing. Like we have to capture that thing in the name of science. A fucking eight foot tall roving stone column and you're there with a fucking billy club. <laughs> 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 I don't blame him for looking at you like you're a fucking nut job. Um, I liked her as like I loved her because it's rare that we get a female version of like this sort of absent-minded, dotty professor archetype. You know, mm. it's usually always the male character, like Professor Travers, or to an extent Professor Kettlewell. It's mm. we've never seen it um, in a female character before, and it's great. Really, really enjoyed it. And unlike Amelia Ducat, she was a lot more present in this. She had a lot more impact on the story. Um, it's like So aside from being comic relief, like she actually was driving plot, being mm. integral to resolution. It was great. Um, we've said it before, chemistry, interactions with everyone in this story, fucking phenomenal. So good. Mm. Um, I liked how open she was to what was going on but at the same time very realistically like there are times like where she did you know she was like like a small child going but what about Vivian what about Romana like what are we going to do all this type of thing it's like that's just real that's just realism Mm. like that's what someone that has spent their entire life in an academic pursuit of one thing and being told no it's fucking way more than you could possibly comprehend um and like i loved like her whole thing of you know you know are you from outer space no and the look of disappointment on her face and then she was like no i'm from inner time huh <laughs> um no f- fan fantastic supporting character like mm. someone that someone you can easily see in the jago and lightfoot camp of potentially having their own little mm. either spin-off or one-off big finish audio adventure with another doctor i agree like i i love her i i think she's awesome um i think unlike amelia ducai or ducato for um i don't think she's as scatty brand no she's not but she is old mm-hmm. right and there is a lovely sense of old woman about her, which sounds a bit strange, but what I mean is like how much she worries. Yes. 
do you know, like when the doctor goes off to find Romana and Vivienne comes to find her and she's like, I should have gone. He doesn't know the Moors and I do. And I just left him wander off and whatever. Or like when the doctor's calling for help and she's there running her bicycle being like, I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming. Like, we, cycle we don't ever actually fucking... see her on the bicycle. Yeah, like, like, she has a fucking cycle. Um, or like when she's using the ray for the first time and it's sort of pops or whatever she's like oh no did, did i do something wrong like yeah. she's so she's so she's so cute it's like, um again like you said her dynamic with everyone is phenomenal and again i particularly love her dynamic with canine yeah because she doesn't treat him like a robot no she treats him like a cross between a dog and a scientist mm-hmm. which is what he is um you know, she doesn't treat him like a thing she treats him like a him which is lovely to see um, but also because she's so open-minded and kind, like Vivienne was arguably a horrible person mm-hmm. overall, right? But the Vivienne that Amelia knew was lovely, mm-hmm. and so at the end, she's like, "But that's it. Like we couldn't save her. We couldn't like." She misses Vivian. Mm-hmm. Do you forget everything else? And like you could sort of chalk it up to her being naive or whatever. I think she's just so incredibly kind that she's like, but the woman I knew was lovely and kind and funny. And do I, does she not exist anymore? Do you know? It's quite heartbreaking, really. And then, of course, you have the bit at the end where, you know, her sort of humor comes back into it again where you know they're talking they're walking back to the TARDIS and you know they're like oh you're gonna write a paper and she's like well you know I do have my professional persona to think of but I would love to fucking <laughs> knock your man off his fucking pedestal yeah work. um and then the, the TARDIS appears like no you have your professional thing to worry about you have your professional thing to worry about you can tell in her mind she's like I'm writing a fucking book. I'm writing a fucking book. No, can't publish it. Shit. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like, she's definitely a character that, like, a spin-off, like, big finish story or a spin-off book or something like that. Or do you know who she actually really reminded me of? Who? Is Wilf. Do you yeah. know? She's one of these characters that, unfortunately, like, I know she doesn't come back, but she's one of these characters that you sort of imagine, you know, two or three years down the line, you've got the doctor back on earth and something comes up to do with archaeology. And he's like, Ooh, Ooh, I have a friend. I'm going to call her. I have a friend. And he calls Amelia Rumford. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. She has that about her and kind of like the way Travers had that about him as well. Do you know? Um, so I'm kind of sad that we don't get to see her again because she could have been that lovely callback character, you know, that earth based callback character that we'd have again, like similar to Wilf. She's small, um, Wilf. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That pause was because I love Wilf. <laughs> also a lovely person. Well, Mary Cribbins was lovely to meet at conventions. Um, that made me sad. Okay, yeah. back onto the yeah. upswing. Yes. Onto the upswing. Oh, oh, I forgot. Happiness. Prominent mm. characters. Yes. The Megara or the Megara or whatever. Thoughts, please go. So, a late addition to the story, but 
plenty of character to them. I thought plenty, plenty like, like to the extent that you get a feeling that they are incredibly dangerous, even to the people that summon them for aid. Because like the doctor said, like that there was a galactic federation that used like these sort of justice machines, like the Megara, and the machines eventually kind of decided that the federation in and of itself was criminal, and so they mm. destroyed it. You know, sort of like yeah. Skynet. What's the yeah. biggest danger to humanity? Humanity. Um, so, really, really good. Um, they c- kind of remind me of the judges from like 2000 AD, like Mega City One, with mm-hmm. this whole summary style as to uh, how they'd already take the pleas or like the. But it was extenuating circumstances into account. It's like, no, no, you broke the law, you pay the, the, the price for it. Um, their interactions with the doctor are great because it's this whole thing of they are an they are a single entity yet one of them acts in the defense even though they know that they're probably going to end up saying that they're guilty mm. but like and it's not done as in a sort of like oh well you need a defense counsel it's like a well no it is our sacred duty to provide a defense counsel as best as we possibly can in this so even though i will go with the hive mind I still have this solemn task to perform so I thought mm. that was pretty cool and the whole I thought it was actually going to go down the route of the doctor accusing the Megara of being or participating in the criminal activity or being a criminal themselves and then having mm. the Megara having this like internal meltdown as they try to put themselves on trial you know mm. I thought it was going to go down yeah. that route, but it didn't. But I would be very interested to see what would happen in a scenario where, you know, they meet the Megara again, and it's like um, posing its own logic to itself, and then realizing that it's illogical. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah. So I I really enjoyed the Megara. I thought they were a really good late game element to it. Hmm. So, for me with the Megara, they actually reminded me of, um, I guess they kind of reminded me of, like, from Dread, whatever. Yeah. Um, for me, it's a case of, I haven't seen that, first of all. Um, but there is a Sarah Jane Adventures audio story. Um, one of the ones that came out after Liz Layden passed away. And it is my favourite Sarah Jane Adventures audio story. It's called Judgment Day. It's read by... Um, you're one who plays Ronnie. Oh, Angeli. And yeah, and in it there is this alien uh, law thing, um, and they're called the Veritas. All right, and their thing is that they big long story. Anyway, they put people on trial for lying, which sounds silly, but it's how their planet was destroyed. It's a big whole thing. But in it, Sarah Jane ends up on trial for lying. All the lies she's ever told to cover for Eunice, lying to the kids' parents, all of the lies she's ever told. She's put on trial for them. And they're like, you are the biggest criminal on this planet. You've, you have told more lies than anyone else. You are the 
like she's literally the worst of the worst in their eyes but why they remind me of them is a you've got the trial component this sort of summary decision mm. but also because the veritas can read your mind mm. and so can the megara so i do wonder if whoever was writing judgment days at the end of the story whoever was writing it um a guy by the name of scott gray i do wonder if he had the megara in mind when he created them does that one start off in a shopping center Yes, it does. Yeah, that no, that is a really good one. It it's it's probably like of the Sarah Jane Adventures audios, it's it's my favorite by far. There's just some amazing bits in it. But so like it's sort of they remind me a lot of the characters from that where you know, the characters in, in that were like, you know, very obsessed with protecting the universe from liars because I can't remember what the exact thing was, but like someone had lied to them and destroyed their planet. And they're like, you know, people who lie are evil. They didn't know the concept before. Whereas the Megara are like, they're machines in a way, they're bioorganic, but they're machines who have the rule of law. And that is what they live by. And in order to get them to listen to you, you have to play it their way. And I love the fact that like, even though like anyone can tell, Vivian's sitting there fucking good fucking luck getting them on your side doctor because you're not going to mm. and like anyone observing her can tell she's clearly shady as fuck but they're like no we have absolutely zero evidence she's done anything wrong you whoever we have evidence against and we're going to put you on trial um so i thought they were really good i thought they were really interesting late edition i completely love the design mm. i love the way they did the design because it wasn't static either they were sort of floating around the place and when they were communicating with each other, they were kind of bumping into each other and it was really cool. Way better than a floaty ball. Thing. Oh, much, much better. A floaty ball. Floaty ball would have been shit. Um, and their back and forth with the doctor was really fun to watch. Floaty, um, ball, floaty ball would have been too comical, I think. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked. Um, but like the way they were done was great. One of the favourite interactions I love with them actually is when they're putting Romana under oath Mm. and they try to and she's like I don't want to say that line like do you want yeah. to die she's like, cool I'll say the line I'll say the yeah. line um, <laughs> as a mere humanoid you fucking pricks <laughs> um, but yeah I thought they were really interesting and definitely I mean I think the Megara are definitely a species that could come back again hmm. like you could introduce them into any doctor's run hmm. and you'd get an amazing story out of it I think oh Absolutely, absolutely, and fucking hats off to the fucking actors that did the voicing and portraying them, like because yeah, like that sounds like an amazing technical feat what they did to like bring it to the screen, but like mm. we don't get to enjoy them without their really good performance, and they did a really good performance here. And it's obvious there's two of them. Yes, yeah, and they have slightly different personalities. Ever yeah. so slightly, and you know. you, and like you can you can see. You, you, if they if they had faces, you can imagine the faces of them, uh, like because of the voice, you know. Yeah. No, uh, I think they were done very, very well. Um, I was a little bit concerned that they were coming in so late. Mm. But literally, as soon as we, you have that first interaction with them, I'm like, nah, <laughs> get your popcorn. These guys are going to be, yeah, <laughs> these guys no, are going to be brilliant to watch. Oh, they're so good, so good. And then we go on to the villains. The villains. Yes. So, so we, we have DeVries and 
Vivian. We'll do DeVries first. Um, so what are your thoughts on Mr. DeVries? So I just said, like, we have the DeVries and the Vivian. Uh, um, <laughs> he is everyone from that village in the demons rolled into one person. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes, yes. I enjoyed his, like, parlay scene with the Doctor. Because you can see the barely concealed, like zealous, like zealotry and malice in his eyes, and uh, the actor did a really good job with that. Um, like he's not in there, he's not in there for a whole lot of time, okay. Mm-hmm. And his impact in terms of the overall story resolution, or kind of negligible. Uh, he's there to serve the purpose of how to get the threat across, mm-hmm. and I love there like himself and Marta's death sequence because mm. like where's like where's the raven? The raven is gone. And like that is he did it so well because he portrayed someone that has just realized that he made a deal with the devil and now the payment is due. Mm. Like the terror in his voice and like you know get out and she refuses to leave and like you said it in the trivia. The idea of like these just stone columns killing people, hmm. it can be seen as kind of silly. It can be. But the writing and the cinematography for the Ogre negates that, as does the performances of the actors against them. Hmm. You actually feel like that these things are predators and they're really, yeah. really, really, really well done. And as I said, only in it for maximum maybe 10, 15 minutes of screen time. Mm. But he does his job perfectly. And I think, mm. therefore, he is a good character. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie. When I was watching this last night, and when he died, like, halfway through episode two, mm. I was like, why the fuck did Paddy include him? Like, what the hell? <laughs> like, <laughs> he was, like, in some ways, he was almost a non-entity. Mm. Yeah. because he's gone so quickly and I was wondering I was like oh why does this guy get a mention and like, it, it, it seemed like at the time it seemed weird mm-hmm. and I was like oh I don't know if I have much to say about him but then when I was thinking about it afterwards I was like no like I, I agree with everything you said like his purpose was to get the plot going that was his job and to get across the seriousness of the situation like he he could have very easily just been an info dump Mm. but he wasn't because he was kind of a compelling intriguing character mm-hmm. and i loved his back and forth with the doctor like you said it almost felt kind of holmes and moriarty yes yeah because obviously he has so much extra information mm. that he's gotten from vivian really mm-hmm. um but i also love his back and forth with martha because clearly devries is a total fucking zealot like mm-hmm. he believes this shit 120 percent the point where he's willing to go further than is probably required of him mm-hmm. to like sacrificing the doctor the rest of them are like what the fuck are you on about and martha is like where are you getting this from we've never done this before she's not here she didn't ask us to do this. what the fuck are you doing mm-hmm. he clearly like, got caught up in the hype but what makes him in my mind an interesting character and why i was like okay i can see why paddy put him in here is he still cares for Martha. Mm. Like, at the end, 
like you said, he's like, get out of that. Like, go. Like, shit. Like, like, he's so terrified that he has brought this to her doorstep. Do you know? Mm. And I'm like, do you know what? Yeah, you're a zealot and whatever. But he still has a heart. Mm. Do you know? Like, he's not a complete a-hole. No. Which makes him interesting. I actually would have liked to have seen a bit more of him. I would have loved to have seen him against Romana. I thought I think that would have been mm-hmm. brilliant to give them a one-on-one. But in a four-parter, when you have the Megara waiting in the wings, waiting mm. for their reveal, and you still have Vivienne to get through, I think, yeah, they killed him off at, at the right time to, yeah. to get the point across of the seriousness of the situation. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he reminds me of... You know, Mr. Plantfucker from uh, Seeds of Doom. He does, but the difference between him and... What the fuck was his name? <laughs> I'll have to double check because I can't just keep calling him... Plant-obsessed plant, man. Plantfucker. Um, is that... DeVries cares about other people. Yeah. And like, you know, in the terms of like the man in the manor house, uh, Hamilton... Mm. Oh, sorry, Harrison Chase. That's who he was. Yeah, Chase, um, yeah. In terms of like your know, man in the manor house, he's that archetype. But as opposed to being the primary antagonist, he's just there to serve a purpose. And you know, sometimes like we've seen it before, like where actors come onto the show and they just kind of fall into performance a small bit. Mm. No, not here. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, I think he was a very interesting character. But then we have the big bad herself, mm-hmm. Vivian Fay. Yes. Stop signing so much. You're in the lunatic of showing. <laughs> like she 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 kinda reminds you of, sorry, Jack Nicholson from like The Shining in the sense of like in The Shining, the character Jack Torrance like you he has this like slow descent into madness. And they cast Jack Nicholson to portray that who is just like fundamentally insane to look at in his everyday life. Uh so yeah, here Vivian is just constantly smiling and it's such an eerie smile. It's like you're really, really off-putting, even when you are pretending to be the nice person. Um, like, as there's just this constant unease surrounding her for the first two episodes before the reveal that she is the one behind everything. It's almost like a cat toying with its prey, you know? Because yeah. like, she's the one, like, oh, what are you suggesting, Romana? That there's, like, this secret sisterhood that's been worshipping these stones for 700 years? And I... Because it's just like... Razak, no, that would be stupid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you raised the point last week that uh, when we were talking about... um, The Queen... Yeah, Queen Sanxia. Or Zanexia, or the attendant, or the nurse. (laughs) Um, That having a well-written female villain that doesn't annoy you is tough because mm. the one that we would always kind of go to is Hilda Winters and mm. with Hilda Winters you're just like would you just shut the fuck up uh, you are the Joffrey of this particular story whereas like with Zanxia she was like this woman is fucking an insane power hungry mm. monster she has to be stopped here it's like this person is almost like the Joker in the sense of like has has access to something that can change objects into other things, can change people into other things, can do anything. 
also has the control of these killing killer stones and just treats everything like it's some sort of weird game very very fucking unsettling needs to be stopped immediately mm-hmm. um so i thought with all that really good antagonist in the story like even like at the, in the trial sequence like she sits there relishing in the fact that she seemingly holds all the cards mm. And like watching her, then when you know it's like uh, when the doctor just essentially kind of goes fuck it, hail Mary, and pulls her into the beam, you know, and at the very end, like she's turned into stone forever. It's like when there's a chance that she could fucking break out again, or something could happen to reverse that. I don't particularly envy whoever comes across her in that regards, you know. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed this particular villain. I I really liked her. Um, I'll be honest. The first thing that came across, like when she first walks into shot, is, ooh, classy lesbian boss lady, um, <laughs> <laughs> just with the pantsuit and everything. Like, I mean, come on, the, the, um, the pantsuit and the short cropped hair, and yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's an, icon, an iconic look. Or yeah. Um, who she actually reminds me of, I hate to keep going back to Sarah Jane, but it's such a Sarah Jane-ish story, it's weird, mm. is K9 and Company. Um, the woman in K9 and Company, the the friend, Mrs. Baker. Oh, Juno Baker. Juno Baker. Reminds me a bit of her. In, like, in the first interactions yeah. with her. Do you know, where you're like, there's something seriously fucking up with you, lady. Yeah. Um, But no, I think Vivienne's really, what I find interesting about Vivienne, right, and this is a slight negative, I'm not going to lie, mm-hmm. is again, because it's a four-parter, and it's a fucking packed four-parter as well, um, why the fuck did she stay there for 4,000 years? There's power to the engines. The doctor says it. Like, the ship could leave whatever the fuck it wants. But it doesn't. And I'm like, okay, is it because she doesn't know how to fly it? Is that why? I think, why? That's, I think that's probably Why didn't it. she leave? I think because, that she. Sorry, I, like, I was. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 You go on. You go on. I'm interrupting it. Because like, she recruited the Augury, brought them, had them with her. So like, did she, did they just not know how to fly the ship? Has she been here for four thousand years as opposed to opening the owner's manual? Pretty much. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is how she has made her life for herself in this community, because. The only thing that people know is the stones. And there's obviously this druidic cult around the stones. But they don't go on and be like, oh, there's people go missing here every year. Like, She clearly was keeping a very fucking low profile. Mm. She wasn't making herself a nuisance to society. She wasn't like killing off all the young or whatever. You get the sense that the couple camping was a massive exception to the way they normally do things. They rely on the cult to feed them blood. The human sacrifice is not something they ever did. Mm-hmm. And you're like, it's so interesting that like she's a really like she's clearly mental. Like when she reveals her her true self, she's fucking yeah. mental to the mm. beyonds. But the life she made for herself and how she made that life is actually quite interesting mm. because she's not a megalomaniac when she's on earth 
I don't no. know if she gets like some weird fucking sick pleasure out of it or whatever. But like she could go theoretically she could go anywhere. And she chooses to remain in this one community for thousands of years. Mm. Even going so far as to take up residence in the manor house using different personas over and over again. Um so yeah, also I love again going back to my sort of classy lesbian thing. Um, was there a senior whatever? Oh, he didn't survive the boat trip. Yeah. Like, no, like she's classy lesbian and has yeah. been for forever. Like I'm she, sorry. She, she's a black she's a black widow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um I think so I raised the point there, like, did she not know how to fly the ship? Like the prison ship? Probably not. Um with the with this with this uh, key to time, she knows that it's able to turn stuff into other stuff. Maybe she doesn't know just you know the capabilities of turning. You know, say maybe she could have turned something into a flying car or got away. You never know. Um, but maybe, and again, this is just my own thinking. There's this element of you know better to reign in hell than serve in heaven type thing, like on earth. Yeah. She's queen of her own little fiefdom, you know, getting by doing whatever she wants. Whereas trying to go back out into the galaxy, she's a wanted criminal. She could be caught. Yeah, and that that that's that's what I'm assuming it is. But like if it's if I had to gripe on something. You'd gripe on that. I'd gripe on that. I know. Like, it's kind of like you last week how you had the issue that like you know, Zanxia wasn't built up. It didn't really bother me that much. Here, though, it's just a question of why the fuck didn't she leave? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, I, and again, like, she maybe, could. Again, why didn't she? <laughs> again, maybe just like that little line of like, why haven't you left before now? Oh, well, you know, I'm having too much fun or something like that, you know? Yeah. But, but I do love her like, when she reveals her true, like, silvery self and she's just sat there on this clear, like, control panel chair thing and she just sits on it like it's a throne and it's just like, oh, the wonderful entertainment. The silver, the, the silver, you know, body paint, or really accentuates just how fucking crazy her eyes are. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh. No, I think again a very interesting villain, a very interesting female villain, and an interesting or a very good um, actor to add to the show. Yes, I thought the performance was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. A very interesting character discussion, I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. A lot, a lot more aligned than some of our points last week, I think. Yeah, I think the characters were less bonkers than last week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't think there's really much for us. We'll, we'll have to see like what to our, disagree on. <laughs> we'll have to see like what our impressions are like on other Douglas Adams stories. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but it is now time for our overall thoughts though so again we summarize our thoughts on the story mm-hmm. give a score out of five mm-hmm. and Petty goes first because he did the socials yes so off you go so uh, I told Trish earlier on that I 
because we hadn't recorded or we, we didn't record last week, I took a break from doing my recap. So I watched part four and then immediately watched the first three parts again for my character notes. <laughs> and she asked, you know, was, oh, was that like a, a spoiler for things to come? And so based on our character discussion, how do you think <laughs> it is? You thought it was shocking. It was horrific. <laughs> Worst story ever. Gunfighters is a five. <laughs> Jesus Christ! What fucking alternate timeline are we living in? Uh, <laughs> it's a. It's like whenever, like you know, um, I make my mom something for dinner, and I turn around at the clean plate. I'm like, that was disgusting. Which was vile. Yeah. Never eat it again. <laughs> but that, that that's your thoughts of the story. It's, the, it's such an Irish thing to do. <laughs> Like my dad always used to say, like you could show your appreciation by doing the clean up, but I'm like, if that's if that's the case, then you hate my mother's cooking because you never do the wash up, you lazy bastard. <laughs> um, no, I I really enjoyed this story, like start to finish, I loved it. As I said, when it felt like we were back in the Hinchcliffe era, like the mm. English countryside setting, good horror, a good meeting of horror and science fiction. Mm. Because you, with the scene set on the spaceship, very com- completely different world to what we've just seen in the preceding two episodes. You know, um, great performances by both the regular and supporting cast. I think John Leeson knocked it out of the park as K nine. Like I think mm. a toss up between himself and Rumford for um, MVP of the story. I think mm. uh, the Ogre which, again, conceptually can be viewed as silly, have this really menacing presence about them the whole time, and they were used really effectively. Um, and like, I liked as well how like there was this mysticism mixed in, because, like, you know, the, oh, who was it? Was it Arthur C. Clarke? The, any type of advanced science can oh, be yeah. is, is, is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. yeah, here we have a case at, like, you know, the Kaliak creates this fucking mythology around herself because she's come from a prison ship, you know? Um, also, I really did appreciate seeing the Wern because that was so good. And I suppose with that in mind, much like the Wern story, this is also a five out of five for me. I thought it would be. Um, even actually before we got into anything, yeah. I was considering this last night. I'm like, I was like, He'd have to have a very interesting take for this not to be a very high scoring yeah. um, episode yeah. for you. Um, no. I wasn't quite sure if it would be five material, like you know, because that that can be kind of your preferential. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, no, this story would have to like he would have to have done like yeah. have like some major gripe with something um, for this not to be um, a five. Like even when I like I was I watched the other three parts back, I was like, I was getting so absorbed in the story, like that I wasn't even doing character notes. Like I just waited mm-hmm. till I had finished everything, and then I was like, all right, time to put you on pen to paper the whole lot. Just no, absolutely loved this story, start to finish. So for me, I like I think it was a really great story. Completely agree with that. Um, totally agree with the reminiscent of the Hinchcliffe era like I said like that's not just you and me they have an entire featurette on the DVD about how it's like Hammer Horror don't mm. I mean um, I think 
one of the things that reminds me of the Hinchcliffe era so much, I've kind of alluded to it, is you could swap out Canine and Romana for Harry and Sarah, and it would have worked exactly the same. Yeah. The impact would have been exactly the same. The beats would have been almost exactly the same. Um, which, for me, when it comes to like a story with Tom Baker, I like that. Mm. I like when you're like, no, this is Tom's doctor and whatever. Um, in saying that, though, I think Romana was brilliant. K9 was fantastic. Mm. Um, could this have been an earlier Tom story? Yes. Am I glad it was a later Tom story? Yes. Yeah. I'm so glad we got it with the characters that we did. Um, the supporting cast were phenomenal. I thought they were all brilliant. Um, I did have one weird observation. I don't know if this is just... So, we've said this before. Paddy generally watches an episode a day. I tend to watch the story in one sitting. That's just the way my brain digests it. And we got to the end of episode three. And I was like, that's such a weird fucking ending. Is the next story, like, the rest of it... I thought it was the end of episode four. Right. And so when episode four started, I was like, oh, holy fuck, no. I was Okay. And so I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was the pacing. I don't know if it was me. It was like like, the pacing in a good way that there was so much going on. I thought it was going on for longer. But I literally was sat there as the credits were rolling on what turned out to be episode three. I mean, like, so is the bit on the ship the next story? What the fuck? Like, I, so I, I, I know exactly what you mean. So like for everyone, how episode three ends is the Doctor and Romana try to get off the ship, but uh, Vivian and the Ogre appear and she says, you're trapped here. You know, you'll never be able to get back. And then rather than do like a, a cliffhanger on that, it shows the it pans to the outside of the ship and you just see the ship in the hyperspace void and then it goes into the cliffhanger, which like would give the impression kind of like... the story was over. Yeah, kind, kind, kind of, you know, like uh, Frontier in Space leading into Planet of the Daleks. Like, all right, we're now going into the next story. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that was a, it was a weird stylistic uh, edit. Yeah, and I, I, I was so confused mm. and I was there, like, I was thinking about it all day today. I was like... Was it just me? Like, did that mean the pacing was good or does that mean the pacing was bad? That I thought that the story was over. Like, I thought, no, it wasn't even the fact that I thought it ended at episode three. I thought I had watched four episodes. Mm. And so when the thing ran, I was like, oh, is this a six character? Then episode four came up. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was so confused. Mm. Um, like I said, I'm fully convinced though that it was probably just me, but. I'd be interested for other people who sit it in one sitting mm-hmm. if they had a similar experience. I loved everything about it, though, for the most part. Like I said, the characters were great. Rumford, I think, is brilliant. Again, she's like a female version of Wilf. I'm gutted that we don't get to see her again because I think she'd be a lovely callback character. Mm-hmm. The only thing... I'm not gonna, I didn't give it a five, and I'll explain why. That bit with Romana that we were talking about. Yes. That really pissed me off. Mm-hmm. Because, and like, you know, there was stuff last week, Romana had, you know, moments where she wasn't doing a whole lot or whatever. But this had a full 
what, 15 minutes of Romana figuring shit out for nothing Mm -hmm. in terms of plot. Great in terms of character, shite in terms of plot. Yeah. And I'm like, it just felt like filler. Mm. Either that or they didn't want to give Romana the reveal at the end. So they had the Megara do it. Because if it's not going to be the Doctor, then it should be the Megara instead. Mm. You know? And it, it really irked me. It it genuinely did. I got really, really pissed off about it because I was like, it was hitting beat after beat after beat after beat. Great, 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 great. Literally, great, she figured it out. Great, great, blah, 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 You know, and then like, when they were saying it at the same time, I was like, oh, maybe Vivienne's going to like come back and like try and prevent, present evidence that she's not it and Romana will come in with her counter evidence to be like, not only did you read her mind, but here's the fucking evidence to prove it. I was like, wait, I was like, and then she just came in and just sort of went, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, you just, no, like what the hell? Like that whole trekking back to Vivienne's house and doing all that research and trekking back out again was for nothing. I <laughs> think um, it just really bothered me because we had the acknowledgement of her intelligence earlier on with defining the solution for K9. And this just sort of felt like they were like, okay, she's had enough. Back in your corner. We can't ever have two amazing reveals in an episode. That would just be too much. I'm like, okay. However, the story was amazing. Mm. Originally, I gave it a 4.5. Mm-hmm. But through our conversation, I'm going to bump it up to a 4.75. I can't give it a 5 just because I was so pissed off at that yeah. point. But it's damn near perfect. Mm. You know, which, you know, it's one of these things where we rank stories as they come up. So people are like, wait, she gave Pirate Planet a 5. <laughs> and. The, it's just my experience of watching it. Yeah. You know, I don't take last week's scores into consideration when I'm doing this week's scores. So. Mm, yeah. Um, and because I've never seen these episodes before, I can't go in with a score in my head. Mm, um, yeah. Which I'm sure you don't go in with a score in your head either. But no, it's... Jesus. Like, if anything, as I said, I'm pleasantly surprised because, as I said before, like we're now in the area where I would view Tom kind of phoning it in, and. Mm. I'm kind of pleasantly surprised to see that I'm actually being. My opinion of that is changing. Now, granted, we still have two more uh, seasons to go, so I could still be proved right with that sort of stuff. But here, it's really, really good. And one thing I am interested to see is next week is we have another story by the same writer as this one. And that'll be cool because we're in a season that is one big arc. So seeing Mm. a writer writing two consecutive stories as part of one big arc, I'm hoping we, I'm hoping the trend continues. Me too. Like I have been pleasantly surprised by this season Mm. because I never hear anyone talking about Romana one. No. And I was like, okay, it's a story long, or it's a season long arc. No one ever mentions Romano one. Maybe it's shit. Mm. Maybe that's why 
like no one ever mentions her do you know mm-hmm. um but like i said i've been pleasantly surprised like we were talking the fact that like for us the comparison is the case of marinus yeah along you know each sto- each episode of that story was slightly different from the last different setting different whatever different type of storytelling um which i do i do kind of want to rewatch it to be honest yeah. because we keep mentioning it but like this season is proving very very strong like just to give an idea right so on average right the first three stories for the season are 4 4.75 4.88 right mm. very high scores the last season to do that well was season 13 and those stories were terror of the zygons planet of evil and pyramids of mars mm. now after that no obviously season 12 was like best season ever right <laughs> ignore season 12 but going back to the most recent one is season 13 after pyramids of mars we had Android Invasion, which is kind of forgetful. Yeah. Brain of Morbius, and then Seeds of Doom. So, like, I'm now, like, in terms of, like, a Tom Baker season, mm-hmm. I'm sort of, in my mind, I'm not really comparing this to Keys of Marinus anymore. I'm comparing it to season 12. I'm comparing it to season 13 in terms of overall scoring. Like, mm-hmm. there's the same number of episodes or same number of stories, how is it going to rank up on average mm-hmm. when compared against, you know, the best of the Philippines clip era? For, yeah. You know? and, like, and so far, it's doing really fucking well. And it is well, like, it's good because of, like, season 15, or sorry, season 14, no, 15. Mm-hmm. We did not like season 15, with the exception of horror Fang Rock and yeah. elements of... Elements of the Invisible Enemy, elements of the sun, the Sun Makers. Sun Makers, yeah. No, season fifteen, we're not a fan of. So, coming into a, coming into like this season, and seeing how good it is, is for me on the second time around, for you on the first time around, it, it's uh, it's such a nice relief, you know. Yeah, and like you said, we still have. Is it three more stories to go this season? Yeah. Um. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Mm. But next week's is the... Androids of Tara. Yes. Which I know nothing about. But all I ever think of, when I hear Tara, like Androids of Tara, I just think I'm like, does this have an Irish connection or something? It, it, my brain just goes there like automatically. I know nothing about it. If memory serves, it, there is this sort of um, medieval Irish type connection to it mm. because because it, it is very medieval in its aesthetic. Um, so like, I remember it being. If I, if I'm right, I remember it being silly, but enjoyable. Yeah, but granted, yeah, it's been ages since I watched it. I need to look up something. Um, okay, I know why it's sparking off in my head. Why? Right. I used to do Irish dancing. Right. Mm. I grew up as a girl in the nineties in Ireland. Of course, I did Irish dancing. 
And on my Irish dancing dress, the bit that pins the back of your dress, the flappy bit from your shoulder, yes. the case part, to your arse, essentially, is a brooch. It's called a Tara brooch. So that's why every time I hear androids of Tara, I'm just reminded of Ireland and particularly Irish dancing. <laughs> so now I'm going to be really interested in, if at all, not obviously Tara brooches specifically, but if you know the connection with Ireland plays out. So, yeah. We'll just have to see. <laughs> Random connections Trisha's brain makes. However, though, until next time. Bye.